0: Well, you can turn then to Psalm 98, and uh, that's where we'll find our text this morning. And uh, wonderful singing. Uh, I love to hear uh, fellow believers and saints sing out hymns like that one, maybe especially that one, uh, because the testimony is, is truly much more than just a song. Uh, with so many of you, it comes from a heart and a life that, that gives that testimony, that God's faithfulness is great. And that morning by morning, even on some of those mornings where you, you didn't know where the day's provision, <coughs> pardon me, was going to come from, maybe not financially or or with your daily food, but in your spiritual life or in in your endurance or in your peace or in, in your family, you didn't know. Yet God proved once again faithful, and that is his testimony, and so it's ours as well. So thank you for your singing. And uh, we'll look at Psalm 98, and we read the first few verses earlier, but let's, uh, let's just begin by reading it. So follow along, if you will. In Psalm 98, I'll read down through verse nine. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness, in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of horn. Make a joyful noise before the king. The Lord, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Father, this this is a true call for us to praise you, uh, to praise you and sing and proclaim your marvelous goodness anew today, as it is any day or any time we read it, Lord, because you are always worthy of this. Lord, as we pause this morning to take some time of of reflection, uh, maybe it's reflection over recent days, maybe it's over years and years, Lord, certainly it's over centuries of, of your provision and your faithfulness to your people. Lord, I pray that that we would hear this call to praise and worship anew, and we would uh, respond to it, not just now at, at this 11 o'clock church worship service, but in all of our life, that we would sing out to you, and that you would receive glory. Help us as we look at your word. Give us your Holy Spirit to understand uh, and to illuminate the words to us so that we can we can do more than just see them on a page, but put them to work in our life. Lord, we know it's your work and we praise you for it and we'll be expectant, Lord, as we glean from your scripture that it will not return to you void. So Lord, work in this place, in our hearts, in our lives today, we ask in this, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, I was reflecting earlier this morning on a a scripture that is very familiar and is fitting for this time of year. And that's from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three. And of course, you know, the familiar words, it begins for everything. There is a season and a time and Solomon goes on a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up a time to weep and a time to laugh. Solomon, of course, is explaining in that poetic scripture the fact that, that life itself happens in, in cycles and there is goodness and, and righteousness and glory for the Lord to be found in all times and all kinds of situations in life. But that scripture with its, its various descriptions for all the things that we do, uh, that we still do in our lives, it really is an excellent description of a year, isn't it? A full cycle of seasons, we know that in the physical world as as we're supposed to be in winter right now, but it's pretending to be spring at least for this week. Um, But life also goes through seasons in many ways, patterns of activities, of repetitions, of emotions, of experiences. For instance, we've all had a birthday this year. Uh, Some of you are more excited about having a birthday than than others were. Some of you wish another birthday might not come. Those of us who are married have all had an an anniversary. Those of us with children have all celebrated their birthdays or at least sent a card or made a phone call. Those of us with gardens or maybe bigger agricultural plots all had times of, of tilling and fertilizing and preparing and planting. And then we had times of watering and weeding and caring and finally of harvest. We've had sunburns and maybe even frostbite. Some of you have had sand in your toes, but maybe more recently had snow in your boots. And uh, that of course, all can be very much metaphorical for the way our life goes and ebbs and flows and ups and downs. And there is a time for everything. We experience so much in a year's time. But as we come to Psalm 98, at least for the purpose of this scripture, all of the things in the world and all of the things in our life come together for one express purpose. And that is to joyfully praise the Lord, to lift up heart and voice and singing and, and praise and expressive language. Why? Because he has done marvelous things. Now, Why exactly this psalm was written, we don't really know. Some psalms are tied very specifically to an occasion in in the psalmist's life or in the history of Israel. Was it after a battle? Was it after a a smaller personal victory? Was it following a, a spiritual victory? We aren't sure. But the message of the song is clear. The Lord, as king, has won the victory. And he's worthy of every ounce of breath and song and praise and thanksgiving. As you look down at the psalm, it can easily be broken up. And I think it was really written in three sections of equal length. For instance, verses one to three highlight God the Savior. Verses 4 to 6 end with a highlight of of the Lord, the King. And then verses 7 through 9 end with God as the faithful judge. But there are other things and themes we could look at too. For instance, verses 1 through 3, we could see God's work of of preservation in in the past. Verses 4 to 6 are the Lord's praises in the present. And verse 7 to 9 the Lord's promised coming in the future. You can also see the psalm as building blocks too. Verses one through three are a call to the Lord's people, to to Israel, to praise the Lord. In verse four, it branches out and and spreads out, broadens to to all the earth. And is called for all creation, or all the inhabitants of the earth. To break into joyous praise and then finally verses seven through nine tell us that all creation even even the rivers and hills with their natural noises can and should take their place in this triumphant choir so there is a time for weeping and for mourning but i think as we look back and forward through all the difficulty and seeming loss we still We still can joyfully say that the Lord is is saving us and preserving us and winning the victory day by day. So the question for this morning then becomes, does your life in both word and deed give testimony to our wonderful God? Does your life in both word and deed give testimony to our wonderful God? I hope this psalm will be an encouragement to do so. And we'll see then, kind of in these themes that the psalm is broken into. First, a call to praise the Lord for his work of salvation. Look at verse number one again. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Now, the fact that we aren't told exactly what the occasion for this psalm was is probably helpful to us in a way, because instead of just imagining that scene or that historical event, we can rejoice generally yet very specifically because it's a call to us to rejoice in God's saving work. And when we think of God as Savior, of course, we can think back to specific victories that God has won. And uh, that is the idea of of salvation in this text. It's it's a saving through victory. Now, this whole section of Psalm, uh, beginning in about verse Psalm 95, is known as the, the kingship or the enthronement psalms. And they were all written a little bit later in Israel's history. So some think that this may have been a psalm responding to Israel's coming back from captivity. It could be that. A deliverance of his people, bringing them back into their own land. But again, we're not told. And when we think of God's history of of deliverance, we can't help but think maybe even first of the story of the Exodus. And when we think of the Exodus, my mind goes to another song of praise, that of Moses. In Exodus 15:1, we hear these wonderful, joyous words. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That song goes on, and even later in that chapter, Miriam comes in and, and sings another version of the same song. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. Glory is God's renown. It's, it's his heaviness. Uh, this is the idea that God has triumphed in such a way that those around are very aware of his victory. Now, that was true in the case of the Exodus, especially the crossing of the Red Sea. All of Egypt, both the soldiers who followed hard after the Israelites, they knew that The Lord had triumphed gloriously as the water closed in around them. And also the rest of the Egyptians knew that when their soldiers didn't return, something had happened. The God of Israel had done something miraculous for his people that a a relatively helpless group of of foot soldiers had somehow defeated a well-regulated army, a wheeled army nonetheless of Egypt the world's great empire at that time. Something had taken place and Moses knew what had taken place. The Lord has triumphed gloriously and everyone around knows it. That's the kind of victory and salvation that this Psalm is talking about as well. There's victory for the Lord, by the Lord in his strength. Notice verse two, the Lord, or the end of verse 1 that his 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 holy arm have worked salvation for him and the Lord has made known his salvation it is a victory by the Lord and it is a victory that the Lord has made known all around he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations we see then both in a big way with the history of Israel and, and his, God's people in times of old, and also in our lives now in smaller ways, we see that God's salvation, his work of victory is meant, yes, to spark personal praise and it, and it has personal benefits, but it also has a chain reaction of outward praise, of outward glory. In the case of, of Israel's many deliverances, Yes, it was meant for their personal peace and joy, but also it was meant for the renown to the nations around them, whether in times of war or peace, that God was at work. God never works in a vacuum. And our experience with the Lord is is never in a vacuum either. That is, it is hard to imagine one single thing that the Lord does for us, for you on your behalf, that is truly just for you. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a specific care and interest for you. What it does mean is that God has saved you for His glory and His glory and renown shining about is a wonderful thing. God's work in you speaks outward through your changed life through your through your changed countenance through your your changed conversation and mannerisms and through your direct statements god's work in you is a testimony outward as he intends to make known his salvation among all people among all the nations and if among all the nations then all people in those nations that certainly includes the far reaches of the world, the unreached nations abroad. Also though, most certainly includes your neighbor who sees and knows you, who interacts with you on a personal level. God's work in you is at least in part meant to be a testimony of his greatness to them. We've just, of course, finished up our season of Advent and and celebrating Christmas. And we've even got the decorations because of course, we've got to let this season go on a little bit longer. But uh, the idea that God's work in individuals extends and reaches outward is clearly seen in the Christmas story. And it's especially seen, I think, in another song of victory and salvation. And that's the song of Mary. Luke 1, beginning in verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy and salvation was was very personal to Mary in a very special way as as she would become the, the mother of the savior. But that victory and salvation that she extolled was also extending outward as the mercy of the savior is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And we can say in a a different but still very true sense that he who is mighty has done a great thing for us and that that deliverance is available, not just for me, but for the many. God has delivered us truly. His holy arm has worked salvation and it is extended to us. What has he saved us from? Well, he's saved us from sin. As Paul said in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He delivered us from sin. He delivers us from death. Isaiah 25 makes this prophecy. He, uh, the Lord will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from faces. The reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. And Paul quotes that passage in that great resurrection teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is that saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. And a little bit later, he writes, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. He delivers us from sin and death, he delivers us also from from Satan, from the prince of darkness. As Paul says in Colossians 1, he, that is Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to his kingdom. Now all of this deliverance, and that's just a summary, we could say so much more, was truly accomplished in terms of time in the past, that is Christ won the victory over these things, over death and sin and the devil through his sinless life, his death and his resurrection. And all of them are applied to us truly as believers now, but there is a a danger in looking at these things as simply past accomplishments, so that we lose the sense and the need and the urgency of present deliverance and present joy. I love how the Psalmist here calls for the reader to sing a new song for the victories of the Lord. We could think of it this way, sing a song anew for old victories. Can you look back over your life and clearly identify things that the Lord has accomplished, the victories he has won, clear ways in which your salvation and and your sanctification have have made a real difference in your life? If so, then you can start this year by singing songs of praise anew for what God has already done. Now, how many of you have seen uh, the classic Christmas film, White Christmas? Raise your hand. Of course, most of us have. And uh, you're familiar with the, the premise of the film, that uh, Danny Kaye's character Phil saves Bing Crosby's character from a falling building in World War II and then uh, you know Phil Davis he suffers some some minor injuries to his arm and then all throughout the movie he uses that injury as a as sort of capital to convince Bing Crosby to partner up with him in a song and dance routine. Well all throughout the movie as you sing as you see those instances of Danny Kaye grasping that arm and you know, giving giving Bing Crosby that look as if to say, Don't you remember what I did for you? The humor of the show grows as Bing Crosby grows more and more annoyed at that exploitation to the point that he, he wishes they'd never been pushed out of the way of that building to begin with. Well, God's deliverance of us is so valuable and so powerful that it never loses its worthiness of praise, it's never an annoyance for it to be pointed out or shown how amazing God's marvelous salvation is. Every time we read of it in scripture, every time we sing of it in a hymn, every time we remember it in the in the Lord's table, it's never an annoyance as if to say, do you really need to remind me of that again, Lord? No, it's always worth singing a song of praise anew. And if we ever grow tired of it, of hearing of it, or thinking about the the value and wonder of God's salvation, then, then we need a heart realignment. Because there is nothing in life, no good thing, no victory or righteousness that does not hinge or touch on God's saving work. He has done it for you. He is doing it for others. We can never take it for granted. No matter how long ago, quote unquote, it might have been for you. You may have experienced the saving work of God 60 to 70 years ago. But truly, you can sing the song of praise anew this morning, this year, this new year, because he has done marvelous things. We praise the Lord for his salvation. And then we go on a little more quickly. We see that we can praise the Lord in our current situation. Pick it up in verse four. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse five, sing praises to the Lord. Verse six, with trumpets and the sound of horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. There is an immediate sense of the very present praise of God that should be in our life. Put simply, the the psalm is not simply calling us to think about praising God or or to write about praising God or, or to imagine praising God, but it is calling us to praise him right now. And this is also where the psalm begins to build, because it goes from a call to Israel, God's people, and now it branches out to to all the earth. All the earth, praise the Lord, break forth into joyous song. Now it's an original context, that meant beyond the nation of Israel to, to the nations beyond. And it's as if it was to say with Isaiah, as he wrote in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. In other words, Now is the time of salvation, and now is the time of praise. And we could say rightly, while you can, praise the Lord. While you can, seek the Lord. While you can, call upon him. And while you can, glorify him. When is a good time to give glory to God? Any time that is a time is a good time to glorify God. Now, you might say rightly that it's not always a good time to sing aloud. For instance, if your spouse is trying to sleep, she may love the Lord too, but may not appreciate you singing loudly at two in the morning. Or if you're an employee, it may be true that you shouldn't take time from your employer and take a 15 minute worship break every hour, that might not be right as well. But there is a way, and there is always a way to give glory to God in any situation, even if subtly, whether it's to simply slip in half of a sentence of of testimony of praise to the Lord in a conversation, or whether it's simply to live righteously In a moment of decision, it is always the right time for your voice or your life to give glory to God. But the stress of this psalm, at least, is is on making a joyful noise. Here it's with music and instruments and our voices, instruments and tools of joyful music and joyful praises. Many of you are not musicians. Some of you would say that you can't even make a joyful noise with your voice, and we could debate that later. But if we could apply this in any way universally, I think it's this. This joyful praise is done intentionally, and it's done with with effort. This song of praise is meant to be done skillfully, with the whole body, the mind, the intellect, the hands, the feet. It's not done accidentally or, or haphazardly. It's, it's not with minimal effort. A word we might use to describe it is, is exuberant, which is to be filled with lively energy and excitement. And we could ask then, how often are we truly filled with excitement over what God is doing. How often in thinking or speaking of your Lord, are you, are you truly filled with, with this joyful energy? Now, it may be relative to where you are in life, to where you are in the moment, but how often is it truly an effort of exuberance that we take to sing praises to him? And even if not singing, let's stretch it out a bit. How often in your life are, are your duties and tasks done with, with true effort as, as testimonies and praise to God? Think of Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, where we're told that whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive your inheritance as a reward You are serving the Lord Christ. This principle is one that should follow us throughout all of life. Do you know know that you can truly do everything in your life as unto the Lord? Christ is Lord of, of all of our life. And if that's true, then all of our life can be done in service to him. It really is that simple. Uh, The scripture uses the the picture of us being bondservants to the Lord. We're told in one place that we are not our own, but we are bought with a price. We are given to him, purchased by him. It's his chosen possession. So whether in song or in sewing, whether in in worship or in work, whether in plotting or in praising, our lives are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Our work is part of our worship of bowing down. Our our vocation is part of of the singing of praise. Our, Our necessary actions, even the mundane in life, can be done to the glory of our master and king. And this of course really comes down as much to our attitudes as it does to our actions. This, this idea tells us that, that nothing in life is mindless for if all is to be done purposefully to the Lord, then nothing is, is empty, nothing is meaningless. Nothing is, is actually mundane. When we love Christ truly, and are overwhelmed with what he has done in saving us, then every opportunity to praise the Lord and glorify him is a worthwhile opportunity. And the beauty of the Lord's redemption is that all of life is redeemed. He has not simply touched your spirit as if to save your soul, but leave your body alone. He has not simply touched your Sundays as if to leave Monday through Saturday up to you. No, he's redeemed all of your life and every portion of it. Every opportunity is an opportunity to praise the Lord. Finally, in verse seven and following, we see that we can praise the Lord for his future vindication. Let the sea roar, verse seven, and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? Because he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Finally, the psalmist builds. He builds to all the earth, even nature and creation. And he builds to the future. Those of you who have been to the ocean, watching the, the what looks like chaos and the crashing of the breakers and the white caps as tides repeat their endless cycles over and over, coupled with wind and gravity. And they, they make that chorus of the symbols of the sea. And you know that as the psalm says, the sea can roar. And when it roars, it roars in praise to God who made it and set its limits. If you've been privileged to see mighty waterfalls and rushing rivers, if you've been to Niagara Falls and you, you know and you watch as, as, as if you could see molecule after molecule times a billion every second passing by you in the form of water, Not one ever questioning its purpose or trying to step out of line. And they make that deafening, but constant sound of water flowing. And it flows in praise to God who made it. Those of you who've sat quietly on the side of a mountain waiting to see a deer or just waiting for a peaceful moment You've heard the, the rustling leaves of a squirrel looking for its, its winter storage, or the fluttering rush of a partridge that gives you a little heart attack when you scare it up, or the low sound of a dove with her song. You know that these things make noise as praise to God, by design, they're simply doing what they're made to do. And as they rustle and, and sing, they sing to the one who gave them their instinct and skill and patterns. Yes, the sea roars, the rivers clap, the hills sing praise joyfully before their maker. So do we? Do we in our lives with our voices and with our work, do we, do we sing joyfully before our maker? And what is the reason given for this joyful song? It's verse nine, because he comes. All of creation, somehow, in the mystery of God's rulership, all of creation knows that its perseverance and its joy lies in the fact that their maker is the redeemer and he's coming. Because now, even though the songs and sounds of nature do praise the Lord, they also do it with a hint of pain. In Romans 8, verse 18, we read, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of, of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation cries out because the curse has had its dread effect. And it causes us to look for better, to look for for the fullness, to look for glory. And we too, though in this state can sing both with joy within, but also with hope, with hope that looks ahead. Joy within with the trouble now, as we patiently wait for the redemption that is to come through our Lord, the righteous judge. The Lord who is coming, verse 9, says to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Lord who is coming is that ultimate vindicator. That coming of judgment brings joy for those who love him. But, but it does spark fear for those who are opposed to him. Remember last Sunday on Christmas Sunday, we read the words of Simeon to, to Mary and Joseph. And he said that the child born would be a for the fall and rise of many in Jerusalem. And he also said he would be a, for a sign, which was to be opposed. As we've been studying Matthew over the last year and a half, and we'll get back into that next Sunday, we've seen that Jesus was opposed. He was opposed from Satan as he attempted to tempt him in the wilderness. He was opposed, by the rulership, he was opposed by the scribes and Pharisees of Israel. And we still see that he is one who is opposed. In so much of society, so much wickedness and chaos, every created blessing it seems is taken and twisted and turned out of order, turned away from design into something it was never intended to be or do. And we pray and we work for righteousness to prevail, but at times, many times, it seems we are losing ground. And we know that ultimately righteousness will prevail and all that is twisted will be made straight. All that is marred will shine once more. We know though that this will not happen fully without the vindicating coming of Jesus in judgment and creation. The seas roar, the rivers clap, the hills sing, because the Lord is coming as that vindicating judge. And at that time, will we be found clapping and roaring and singing because we long for the coming of that judge. At the end of his life, Paul wrote to young Timothy and he, he wrote him to persevere, to encourage him to press on. And in chapter four in Second Timothy, we read that Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Some of you, like Paul, are, are closer to the end of your earthly journey than others. If the Lord tarries can you look back with, with that kind of mindset that you are eagerly awaiting your meeting with the Lord because you rest surely in your standing with him? Know this, that those of us who stand behind you with, with more years left to live, we want to look ahead to you and see you with this, with this joyful confidence we want to see you as those who love the Lord's appearing. And those of us who are coming behind, we want also to be those who can one day say that we've fought well, that we have loved his coming. And that his coming strikes, not a overwhelming sense of fear, but a song of joyful praise waiting for final redemption. So for now, with one voice, we praise the Lord for what he has done in the past. We, we praise him in our current situation, whatever that may be. And we wait and pray and praise joyfully for the coming of the Lord. Every wrong will be made right. Every out of place and out of joint element in creation will be true again. Every injustice and unrighteous thing will destroyed and forgotten for he comes so while we are here we ask once again do our lives in word and deed give testimony to our wonderful lord